This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to RRR's Radio Therapy, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr. Autonomy, and yes, I've dragged myself away from all of the incredible Grand Prix action and decided to come into the studio instead to talk about a whole range of somewhat unrelated but very topical issues. And not only am I joined by two of our stellar regulars, Miss Medic and Dr. Malice, but we've also got an extra special guest joining us for the hour, a clinical geneticist who moonlights as a young fiction writer, Dr. Sue White. So what are we actually talking about today? Well, if you were listening last week, you might have heard the discussion on last week's show about how nutritional supplements for de- about nutritional supplements for depression. We're going to extend this conversation a bit more today and talk about alternative treatments for other serious medical conditions. Where do you sit on the scale? Do you think anyone should be able to refuse medical treatment and seek their own alternative therapies? Or do you think there's a line where the medical profession needs to step in? Are you someone who relies on alternative therapies a lot yourself? And if so, are you always honest with your doctor about what you take and why? Miss Medic has kindly volunteered to lead us through this ethical minefield this morning. Also on the show today, we'll be checking in on the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. It's been going for over two years now, the Royal Commission that is, investigating how institutions like schools, churches, sports clubs and government organisations have responded to allegations and instances of child sexual abuse. Did you know that during this time the Royal Commission has received over 22,000 calls, over 10,000 letters and emails, and they've held more than 3,000 private sessions? But is all of this achieving what it's meant to achieve, and are there any shortfalls? Dr Malice is going to tell us more about this later in the show. And as well as all that, we'll be calling on the expertise of our special guest clinical geneticist to find out what Marfan syndrome is, why there was a conference on about it this weekend in Melbourne, and how Marfan's and other genetic conditions like it can impact on young people's self-esteem. And if we have time, I'm also dying to pick her brain about how a clinical geneticist ends up moonlighting as a young fiction writer. (laughs) Yes, a big show, but we've got a whole hour. So grab a cup of coffee and settle in as we bring you all of this, plus some ketchup, some laughs and more, as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm actually not trying to go for a sort of Marilyn Monroe vibe with my intro there. I'm just... The whole breathlessness factor at seven and a half months pregnant takes me a bit by surprise, so sorry about that. (laughs) Malice, good morning to you. I'm I'm glad you clarified that about the Marilyn Monroe breathing because the listeners may may have wondered at 10 o'clock in the morning, what's going on in the studio? (laughs) Well, you know, it's a pretty interesting studio at times. (laughs) It's the love flowing around. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to take lots of deep breaths I feel your pain I remember doing this too, Autonomy when I had a a much larger bump than yours, can I say your lovely little compact bump is looking gorgeous (laughs) but I remember getting very very breathly here in the studio yeah Listeners must be used to it by now. I think they are. I think that's, you know, perhaps that's a cohort of our listeners tune in just for the hope of a bit of our, the breathy doctors. Nice, Miss Medic, nice. And Dr. Sue White, good morning to you. Welcome. I didn't realise I needed to bring along, like, a Marilyn persona to, but I'll, I'll just try and think of something interesting to do with my breathing pattern. I haven't got a pregnancy to blame it on, though. You've already done yours. Um, yeah, I can't believe I forgot to put that in the email i'll have to be a bit more detailed next time (laughs) thanks so it's great to have you with us today pleasure so guys it's been a busy week in uh, medicine and the world of psychology as always um and i can see that you've got some bits of paper in front of you and things that you've been reading about um miss medic we might start with you 
Well, yeah, it has been a, a very big week in medicine, um, as has been um, broadcast through the mainstream media. We have heard a lot about alternative therapies this week, and there's lots of interesting things that have come out of it. Um, this morning, just before we get into our larger segments, I was just going to talk about the NHMRC um announcement that came out that they have so then the NHMRC being our a peak science body that evaluates all things scientific and medical and tells us all about what is good medicine um, so they've come out saying that homeopathy when they've looked at all of the studies and all of the evidence behind it they've come out saying that homeopathy has no good evidence so for no clinical conditions which for a lot of people I'm sure feels a little bit um, challenging especially because we have a strange situation such as our private health insurance covering some of these therapies so we're giving a lot of mixed messages here but um, yeah the the overwhelming feeling and what has been backed up with the studies to date is that homeopathy offers no good no benefit to any clinical condition it was a pretty strong statement that they came out with this week wasn't it there was no two ways about it no they they have made it very clear which i think you know we do need clarity on these things um and especially in light of this really mixed um message that's been given by the fact that some private health insurers are covering it so it does kind of give a sentiment that there is some weight behind these therapies so i think that most doctors now feel with this very clear statement that's come from the NHMRC it is really time to look at what we are what we are saying to the public in terms of what is being covered by private health insurance and um and just really sending home that message that this isn't this isn't evidence-based and when we talk about everything else in conventional medicine the the therapies we provide have to have an evidence behind them that they that they are able to give the effect which is uh, proclaimed that they that mm. they will give we were having an interesting little um, chat about this in the green room actually before coming on air about the things that private health insurers do and do not provide and sue you were saying that there's you know all these gaps around genetic um, interventions and um, tests that people might want that aren't covered by yeah and i think i'd be fascinated to understand the politics behind um the decision making of private health companies as to what they do and don't fund um i imagine there must be some very intense lobbying that goes on but in my field um, there's a lot of new genetic tests that are clinically indicated and in most countries overseas funded by private health um, insurance companies and Australia has just sadly lagged behind in that regard and so families pay for these tests themselves or sometimes can get funding through the public system but a lot of the time the family do- is not able to take advantage of what is pretty routine health care in other countries mm. so you can understand why people are getting sort of mixed messages can't you about where they should be spending their money and and what is evidence-based and and what's going to have a real impact on their health and, and their life i think we should just take one step back about what evidence is mm. because in nhmrc language national health and medical research council language evidence is gold standard evidence is the double blind control study and that is where a an agent or a a, a, a drug is tested against a known current practice. The investigators are blind to who's getting the sample and who's not. And then they come out at the end of the study with the outcome variables and they have to show a, a statistical significance for it to be a gold standard evidence. Now that's, let's say, five-star rating. At the lowest end of evidence is anecdote. You know, if I take a uh, whiskey at night and feel better, I say whiskey is great for a bad mood. <laughs> now, that's anecdotal. It won't get funding. It's out-of-pocket whiskey. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think we have to know the spectrum of evidence. And in between, there are case studies, which is a little bit more rigorous. That is, a professional actually follows someone with a condition, does something, and says, I think I attribute what I've done to the change, whether it's for better or for worse, hopefully better. 
And so, and then there are, of course, uncontrolled studies. Now, all of these provide evidence, and most uh, guidelines actually have little asterisks on what level of evidence that study is generating, and then in the guidelines for professionals, which level of ed- evidence they're following. So while it seems clear-cut, I think we just need to take that step back of realising there are levels of evidence, but of course with genetics, it's a whole new ball game. <laughs> That's just having to break into as the new kid on the block and and vie and fight for evidence that it's it's worthy of funding. But you're absolutely right. We do have to um, provide a robust argument for anything to be funded, um, and particularly with rare disease, that poses particular challenges because. Um, uh, doing randomised controlled trials of interventions in rare disease is very difficult. Yeah, good point. Well, we're going to be coming back to this idea of alternative therapies later on in the show, aren't we, Miss Medic? So we might leave that there. And Dr Malice, you've got some pieces in front of you as well. What have you been reading up on this now, week? I'm going to follow suit with Miss Medic is just sort of preface what's actually happened in the week for the larger segment on the Royal Commission. Yeah. And if anyone looked at the Thursday age, they may have been wondering what culture is medicine living in? <laughs> On the front page, two lead stories, which a number of friends who I've discussed this with thought they were one story. There's a picture of a neurosurgeon, Dr. Tan, and next to it is the uh, text of top surgeon quits amid harassment allegations of the Alfred. And they thought this is just obviously the text and the the, the picture. (laughs) You go into the body of the paper, and there are actually two parallel stories of female harassments within the surgical, and we could widen it out, I guess, to the medical and health profession generally and we really have to ask what is going on that at the moment such allegations which clearly haven't uh, arisen today these are historical in the sense of time but the culture for some reason at the moment is allowing safety enough for this to be brought to the public attention and not without great personal costs because some of these women actually have had their, and Dr Tan in particular says her story, that her career virtually was ruined Mm. by not accepting a sexual advance from someone a male advance in in the profession. Now, someone spoke on her behalf, and that, of course, a week before became a major controversy, suggesting that she may have had a better chance with her career had she given in to the sexual advance in some form Mm. or other. I won't go into the language, Mm. but uh, most people will know. Now, what is actually going on that for decades this system of um, in-house abuse has been going on and it is only now that there's enough safety confidence peer group support whatever dynamic is going on to attend to this institutional and institutionalized system of abuse Mm. i raise this question because when we come to the royal commission that of course extends all the way back to the 1970s so the brief for the Royal Commission is from 1972-2012. Mm. It's a 42-year period. And as you said, uh, Dr. Autonomy, in the intro, something like 33,000 contacts have been made in the last couple of years since the Royal Commission has taken up. 33,000 contacts. Now... They they obviously didn't happen from 2012, the allegations, but the previous 42 years. So we really have, I think, a cultural change going on. And we have often used the language here on Triple R in terms of our specialties, that there's a game changer, a paradigm change going on within our specialty. And whether it's an appropriate term to say there's a paradigm change going on in our culture. And then that paradigm change is something we should discuss. It's a really interesting question, isn't, isn't it, about, you know, what are the pieces of the puzzle that allow people to, some t- to, at some point, feel like they can finally talk about this and be open about something that's happened years ago, um, following all of the stuff that's been in the news about this um, sexual abuse and um, pressure from surgeons and, and medical profession. Um, I've had some very interesting conversations with other female colleagues in the profession over the last week and, you know, inevitably, 
people are you as as soon as something like this comes up in the news people sit down and they tell you their stories as well about what they've seen or what happened to their friend or what happened to them in their training and you know it's it's clearly very common but you know what is it that allows people to feel like it's time for them to speak up and that they can do that and that they can do that without hampering i guess their career or or um, it affecting their life in a negative way and I mean that's not the story that's come out this week in the age but I wonder if it, it sounds to me like you're saying maybe the fact that this Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse is going on has maybe been part of that um, puzzle in allowing people to feel like this is something that needs to be heard and, and talked about. Well I think if we take the model that children talk to parents about experiences that they feel the parent will be sensitive and safe to understand their mm. experience. Now, we've often used the model that, you know, our prime ministers, our leaders are for our constituency, our parent figures. Mm. Now, clearly, a Royal Commission, which was initiated in 2011, I think, uh, by Julie Gillard, and then started with the mandate to start in 2000 or 2012 to start in 2013, a Royal Commission has that quality that society is appointing a safe place with people called commissioners to actually hear things that society couldn't otherwise hear. In other words, it was taboo. Mm. And so if one of the functions of Royal Commissions is about discussing of critically important issues. There were financial misdoings, uh, corruption in other professions in Queensland. There have been lots of royal commissions. But the common factor is that it allows a safe place for members of the community to relate their experiences and be taken very seriously and sensitively. And in fact, when I'll come to my section, I'll introduce actually three telephone numbers of support places in case listeners who are listening become in any way distressed or upset or even curious. So they'll have the phone numbers ready without having to call in to us or get onto our Facebook afterwards. And I think that's one of the marks of um, the importance of discussing experiences like this. They tend to re-traumatise unless we as professionals realise we have to be careful to aim to de-traumatise. And it's a very delicate balance between re-traumatise and de-traumatise. And fortunately, the Royal Commission set up very, very safe places and three institutions I'll mention later with phone numbers where the de-traumatising will be able to occur. Mm. So that's an essential part of such an opening up of a space. I think that's really important, Dr Malice, and I think that's part of what was so... um depressing in a way about the stories that came out over the past couple of weeks about the medical profession that clearly people who were coming out and and talking about these things um, weren't met in that kind of safe space and uh, didn't feel that um, their their concerns and experiences you know were heard and attended to which is a huge part of the problem isn't it Mm. i look forward to your segment later on in the show I'm going to lighten up the mood just for a minute um, and talk about another little bit of catch-up that I came across this week, which is something about sitting disease. Has anyone heard of this phrase, sitting disease? Is it the new discovery that just by the act of sitting we can get sick? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, it's yes. pretty scary mm. stuff, actually. And so, <laughs> if only this weren't radio, <laughs> everyone would know, Dr. Malice, that you had just chosen to stand up instead of sitting down for this hour. But, but I mean, this is exactly what it's about. And so, you know, there's there's more and more research coming out on this. But I, I read a little article this week um, that was talking about links between a um, sedentary lifestyle and coronary heart calcification, which I think, Miss Medic, is a preclinical marker for heart yeah, disease. Yeah, so we're talking about the, um, the artery supplying the heart being having calcified deposits there which narrow the arteries and therefore predispose you to have a, a cardiac event, like a heart attack. Yeah. So, you know, we know about sort of diet and lifestyle and exercise and all of these factors, but the fact that simply the number of hours that you sit for each day can be a huge risk factor is pretty scary stuff. And it's, I guess the key message of this article is that, you know, yes, exercise is really important, but if you're exercising for half an hour, an hour every day and you're sitting for the rest of the day, you know, that's not good enough and it's it's not enough in terms of health implications. And so reducing how 
much you sit every day can be a really important companion strategy for whatever other um, health strategies that you're using. And this study was was looking at about uh, more than 2,000 adults, I think, in the States. And the statistics they quote, which shocked me, is that for every extra hour that these people sat each day, they had a 14% increase in their heart calcification. Like, for every extra hour. So... Yeah, this is, it's, I know, if only, if only you could see the facial expressions in the studio, guys. But I had the same reaction. So it's, it's each extra hour that you sit during the day, you know, that is stuff that can actually make the difference. And so they had just some really simple strategies that they talked about in this article. And I think it's stuff that we sort of intuitively know, but we're not actively doing in our day to day life. So, you know, taking a walk at lunch, maybe standing up and pacing while you're talking on the phone taking the stairs instead of the elevator um and just another key factor if you do have a job where you are forced to sit down for a lot of the day you know don't go home and spend the night in front of the tv sitting for more hours you know if, if there are parts of your day that you really can't change the the number of hours that you sit for then you've got to be extra careful in terms of what you're doing around those hours miss medic yeah look i've I've heard about this recently in terms of some corporate um some companies involving or incorporating a standing meeting rather than Mm. a sit-in meet and they also found in doing that the meetings were shorter (laughs) (laughs) so it's sort of more efficient intervention so it's sort of you know they're more efficient people are standing getting things done more than just sort of into that really sedentary lazy sort of mode that you can get into just by sort of sitting and eating during a meeting I love it. Yeah. It's harder to check your phone while you're in a meeting standing. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can't hide it <laughs> Interesting. Maybe we should start doing the show standing up, guys. I'd be all, yeah, I'm into it. Okay. Yeah. Right. This is the pilot study going yeah. on. Yeah. 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 This is up. I right. feel like we would all break into song, like that we would just go sort of like, do a little band going on. None of this translates very well by radio. No, <laughs> Fun for us, though. Um, thanks guys you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia so special guest dr sue white let me tell you a little bit about her before we uh get her talking again um so dr sue white's a clinical geneticist as i said and she works at the victorian clinical genetics services at the murdoch children's research institute She studied medicine at Monash Uni and trained in paediatrics at the Royal Children's Hospital, completing her genetics training in Oxford and in Melbourne. And she works with families with children with rare genetic conditions, particularly those genetic conditions that have an impact on the child's appearance, and they're called dysmorphic syndromes. Her research interests are also about improving rates of diagnosis in these children and identifying the genetic causes of rare genetic conditions and studying how these conditions affect children over time. She also leads the Childhood Syndrome's flagship of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance, which is a project evaluating next-generation sequencing in children with suspected syndromes. And in her spare time, if you can believe that she has any, Sue writes fiction and has had work published in The Big Issue, the Reader Anthology from the Emerging Writers Festival and Melbourne's Child Magazine, where I often come across your articles, actually, Sue, in that magazine. And they're fantastic. So welcome again. Thank you very much. Now, there's a range of things that I want to talk to you about this morning. But I think the one that we're going to start with first is Marfan syndrome because there was a conference on this weekend about it and it's often not something that people know a lot about. So we might start there. What is it? Yeah, sure. Um, Marfan syndrome is a a rare genetic condition and uh, it causes people to be tall statured and also to have a risk of other health problems like heart problems and eye problems. Um, And when I say it's rare, it affects about one in 5,000 individuals. So in my world of rare things, it's it's not so rare. Um, And we probably all know a person who has Marfan syndrome. While it causes a person to to have a slightly different appearance, sometimes that can be quite subtle and hard to detect. And so um, one of the key sort of drivers about improving care for people with Marfan syndrome is awareness of it, um, which I think was one of the drivers behind the conference this week. Um, making people 
people aware of Marfan syndrome, doctors, health professionals and the general community is a really important thing because the complications of Marfan syndrome can be life-threatening but they are potentially preventable mm. so if you know that you have it that's a very powerful thing in terms of improving your um, health care and how might someone know that they have it is it immediately obvious obvious when they're born or can it be years before they're diagnosed what to, what does it mean for yeah someone? i certainly don't want all tall uh, listeners to start um, <laughs> taking their heart rates and booking their angiogram um uh Mostly it's not obvious at birth, but um, most individuals with Marfan syndrome will be particularly tall, taller than other family members. So taller than would be expected for their family. Mm -hmm. Um, But they often have a a range of other, what we call skeletal manifestations. So long fingers, uh, loose joints, flat feet, sometimes a curve in the spine, sometimes um, a high palate and crowded teeth. And there there are a variety of sort of clinical features, I guess, for a person in the community um, wondering if they might be affected, um, it, it's a good conversation to have with your GP uh, who would be able to sort of look for the features of Marfan syndrome and, if needed, seek advice from either a paediatrician mm. or an adult physician or a geneticist. Right. And so as well as those physical features, I imagine that there's a whole range of internal impacts of the genetic condition because you mentioned that it can have some pretty serious and even life-threatening consequences. So what's going on internally? Yeah, right. So it's classed as a a connective tissue disorder which means that the the sort of connecting bits of the body are affected by a, a genetic mistake um and so parts of the body like the aorta the big tube that takes blood away from the heart can be wider than they should be and um and if that is not um treated which it can be treated with medication uh there's the risk of the aorta dissecting which means that it splits Mm -hmm. and um that can be fatal Mm -hmm. if um it's it's not detected Right. And is that often fatal in childhood or adulthood or is there... Fortunately, if it occurs, it usually occurs in adulthood. Mm. Um, And what we've seen now with um, better detection of Marfan syndrome and and earlier treatment is that we can uh, actually reduce the size of the aorta in a person who has Marfan syndrome. So while the condition still has an impact on that person's life, Um, we're seeing much better life expectancy um, figures. Sounds like something that might have changed quite a bit over the last few decades in terms of identification and treatment. Massively. And I think um, uh, the life expectancy figures, you know, in about maybe the 70s or 80s was of an average life expectancy of about 40, and that's much improved now. Mm -hmm. And so... Obviously, when we talk about a genetic condition, uh, one of the first things that comes to mind for people is how is it passed down in families? You know, if someone has Marfan syndrome, does it mean someone else in their family has necessarily had it? What's the transmission of these genetic mutations? So it's called an autosomal dominant condition, which means that um, a person who has it has a one in two chance of passing it on to their future children. But it can also start as a new condition in one person. Mm -hmm. So that's the tricky thing about it it's not necessarily inherited from a parent it can start as a new condition in that individual right okay and this is really part of your broader work isn't it sue because your sort of area of specialty is what did you call them dysmorphic conditions (laughs) dysmorphic syndromes dysmorphic syndromes a bit of a loaded term so i'd I'd love a new um description if anyone can think of one (laughs) but it's genetic conditions that affect children that that change their appearance or alter their appearance is something that i work particularly on and yeah marfan syndrome i have a, a particular interest in partly as you mentioned I in my spare time write a bit of fiction and I've recently finished a novel about a young boy with Marfan syndrome so I have a kind of crossover uh, passion for Marfan syndrome. Right we are definitely going to come back to that stuff about writing fiction because I think it's a fascinating part of what you do but can you tell me a bit more about that broad area of genetic conditions that affect young people and I guess what the sorts of things that you are focused on with them? Yeah, so um, I guess that a lot of the, so there are a lot of genetic conditions that um, affect. Um, we'll start with a DNA mistake 
that affects internal organs and sometimes affects um, function like learning or behaviour, but also affects the formation of the face and the body. And so some of these conditions can can make a child look different and they are sort of collectively grouped as dysmorphic syndromes. I guess... um, in the past we didn't think all that much we perhaps weren't very sensitive to what it was like for that individual as they grew up to have a difference in appearance Um, but increasingly that's an area that we're very interested in learning about what parents experience is like having a child with a dysmorphic syndrome and also what a child themselves experiences as they grow up and Mm. to become an adult what it's like for them perceiving themselves to be different the way i think about it is it's a perhaps a a more extreme example of what we all feel of course we're all different and i have a particular interest in what that's like for adolescents where i think adolescents come up very strongly um, against a sense of individuality versus a sense of the tribe or the you know the the common person and i think um, when a person has a a medical reason to be different Mm. that's that's accentuated and i'm very interested in what that experience is like Mm. miss medic this brings me back to a a documentary i saw i think it might have been last year about some kids in the uk with treacher collins syndrome and that's a really that's a genetic condition that causes um you know quite sort of severe dysmorphic features of the face and some of those people chose to then engage in surgery to have some of those uh, facial structures like their mandible which is their jawbone corrected what are your feelings on that having surgery to to kind of become more normal in inverted commas in terms of the um their appearance like does that is that something that comes up for you in your line of work mostly it, it does come up a little bit. Um, we see it mostly, I guess, in the situation where parents will be extremely anxious about something, uh, a feature in their child that we would perceive as being largely cosmetic and uh, being very keen to have surgery for something that we would perceive perhaps as not having a medical need for the surgery. And I guess depending on the range of other problems that that child has, we might work with them to try and prioritise what we thought were the primary health needs. But I think we do need to recognise, I mean, this is just, just, it's symbolic of cosmetic surgery in all its forms in our community and I think uh, we should be no more judgmental about these individuals who who want to look different than we are about any individual who who wants things to be different but also seek to understand that and seek to understand what the contributors are in our society that we think we all that there's a desire to all look the same um, mm. or to look a particular way you know which is perhaps 16 to 24 years of age and you know the fact that we're not all in that age group um we we need to perhaps be approaching that from a different angle yeah Mm -hmm. and i guess you know when you think about adolescence and you think about the range of challenges that that stage of life brings having a medical condition is a huge additional layer of stuff to cope with as a young person but i guess having that be visible to everyone around you as well you know adolescence can be so private and so self-conscious and and having to cope with what it's like to have this additional medical condition but also to have everyone know about it and it to be obvious i think is is you know just a double whammy really isn't it Uh, it's a really good point you can imagine the trip to the supermarket becomes a whole another adventure when um people in the public think it's a good idea to come up and comment on the ways in which you look different mm-hmm. um, and I think um, it's very exposing and if an adolescent is very comfortable in their skin I'm not sure I've met an adolescent <laughs> yet who's comfortable in their skin but let's imagine there was one um, that might be fine but I think for most individuals who have a genetic condition that makes them different or looks makes them look different that's particularly di- challenging. Dr. Now, talking about uh, public uh, the appearance in public, and we know that uh, adolescents or children generally aren't always the kindness to their peers. Uh, are such children prone to bullying or being victimised more than others? And if so, is there any 
sort of public education within schools for children with dysmorphophobic conditions to, to sort of reduce the, the risk? Anecdotally, I would say they are prone to bullying, but I don't know if I've seen any evidence, going back to our previous <laughs> chat, um, proving that. I think um, it does. It often um, does come back to the tone that's set both by the family and the school, I think, um, and that can... So by that I mean um, if the condition is handled openly but sensitively, that can be, often be a way to um, perhaps circumvent some of those um, other social behaviours that can occur. Mm. Um, we will wrap this up in a minute, Sue, but I guess I'm really interested in whether some of these personal issues to do with adolescents and how they cope is part of the reason that you decided to go into the fiction realm for young writers. Is, is this sort of a way that you think you can expose some of these issues and get a bit of a dialogue happening? Yeah, I don't know if I had that conscious thought process. <laughs> I don't know if I had much thought process really about it. Um, but I think I, I started writing really wanting to do something creative and um, and I, I guess, I don't know, it'd be interesting to unpack why writers write, but mm. I, I think for me I witness lots of um, suffering and quite complicated emotional experiences of the people I see and I'm really interested in... Um, writing stories that have emotional honesty as the, as a sort of component to them. And I guess, so yeah, I am passionate about communicating that in, in the realm of fiction. Wonderful. And did you say one of the books has already been published? Sadly, no. No. But yeah. Coming it, out it, soon. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yes, it is, it is with a publisher who's kindly considering it at the moment. So we'll All cross right. our fingers. Make sure you let us know when it comes out and we'll pop it up on our Facebook page and let people know where to get we'll it. Do. Yeah. Thanks, Sue. That was a fascinating conversation. Three Triple R. And we're going to go to a bit more of a serious conversation now, which is going to be about the Royal Commission into Institutional Childhood Sexual Abuse. And I guess that's a bit of a red flag for anyone listening, that perhaps if that doesn't feel like something you want to be listening to on your Sunday morning, then now would be the time to turn the radio down for a few minutes. Um, we're not going to get into too much of the details, though. I guess our real interest, Dr Malice, if I'm right, is about it's been going for two years, you know, what's happening and is it really achieving the goals that it was set out to achieve. Yes, uh, and uh, in that spirit, I'd like to also set the tone of safety. So please, if you feel this is going to be uh, upsetting, then maybe for the next five, six minutes, uh, have a bit of a stroll uh, for all sorts of reasons that might be healthy. <laughs> uh, but in any case, I'm going to first start with announcing uh, three agencies that the Royal Commission actually recommends as ports of call, free services for advice, guidance, uh, information, understanding and uh, pointers of where you can uh, go to and who you can speak with. They are the Drummond Street Centre. The phone number there is 9663-6733. Open Place. Phone number is 9421-6162. And Relationships Australia, uh, which an 1800 number, 1800-052-674. And we'll put those numbers up in the names after the uh, on our Facebook, I think. Yeah. Thanks. Yep. Now, the idea of bringing this to our attention is that it's so much in the news, and I'd like to actually take a very, very sort of focused question about the ethics of royal commissions because we've got obviously Dr Autonomy as an ethics expert and while the intention of royal commissions is very clear that is to bring a debate to a community by opening up subjects that are of deep community concern but at the same time have various layers of taboo secrecy and in some cases cover up associated with them therefore it's opening up areas that normally don't get into a public narrative and a public discourse. That's its aim. However, when we come to the area of childhood abuse and childhood trauma, one of the difficulties is that 
any discussion by definition is likely to take that person whether they're still a child or 20 30 40 years later an adult and perhaps an aging adult they the conversation takes them back to the site the place where the initial trauma occurred we are all familiar with trauma in the physical sense now in the last 20 25 years we also know that trauma affects the brain in much the same way as we've known that trauma affects the body and the reason we know this we talked about evidence there is now actual pictures of how the brain looks in the normal state and how it looks in various traumatized conditions the classic example being veterans of war but the same holds for traumatized civilian populations either by man-made trauma or natural trauma like bushfires now and i have to say not everyone obviously suffers trauma after events that are overwhelming However, the ethical question is, since our health is guided by the ethical principle first to do no harm. Now, if we know that talking about trauma takes people back or risks taking them back to the place where they were experiencing it and the technical language is to re-traumatize them, how do we ethically put the safeguards in place to actually achieve what the Royal Commission and all of us in health wish to achieve, which is to de-traumatise, that is, reduce the impact of the trauma and, indeed, to make it so much part of the person's life that they can get on with it, not by avoiding it and putting it into a different silo in their brain, but actually, as the expression goes, grow through the experience. Now, as we know from neuroscience, this is no longer just mythical fantasy and wishful thinking. There are many methods which in clinical settings we can achieve this, notably EMDR, eye movement desensitization rescheduling, has become one of the mainstays of severe complex trauma conditions. But there are many other forms like uh, sensory motor integration and, of course, the traditional therapies, art therapy, drama therapy, music therapy and so on, all working through the right brain. And, of course, medications there in the background as a background regulator. So the ethical question is, how does a Royal Commission, which is looking at institutions, not a clinical person looking at one-on-one case-by-case study, but a Royal Commission that is focused on institutions across the board, as autonomy you introduced, from government schools, orphanages, foster homes, uh, uh, religious institutions and so on, And opening up all these institutions to topics that were taboo, how does a Royal Commission try to get the balance right to de-traumatise the individuals in that institution rather than re-traumatise? It's such an important ethical question, Dr Maltless, because obviously the Royal Commission is being created to, um, to help people who've had these experiences and to try to prevent similar experiences from happening in the future. But... You know, if in trying to achieve all of those aims, they're actually making things worse for people who've already had these um, traumatic experiences, then you've got to question the validity of the whole thing. So it, it really is so much about that balance, isn't it, of giving them an opportunity to feel heard and have their stories witnessed and have that information um, work in a positive way, but making sure that's a safe environment that doesn't um, harm them further and that makes leaves them feeling okay. It's such a delicate balance. Miss Medic? It's, to me, it also seems like the the actions of the individuals that are telling their stories through this, it's almost an altruistic act mm. that they're doing it in order to help future people from potentially having these same, you know, horrific circumstances imparted on them. Mm. Um, and it, I guess it's about also, because we're, this is focusing on the institutional side of this abuse so it's about how did this come to play that these it's not just about the perpetrators and the victims but the broader people that helped this you know really fester within these organizations there were people that knew about this that it didn't didn't um take the steps that were needed in order to to bring those the perpetrators uh, you know in front of the law or protect the young people that were being victims so it's about 
it, it almost, to me, it, it screams of altruism, mm. that these people are involved in it in order to, you know, really try and uncover how this came to to happen and prevent it in the future. And it's a really brave altruistic altruistic act, isn't it? I think that's a lovely way Absolutely. to think about it. In so fact, that, resonates, that mm. resonates profoundly with one of the major textbooks that has become a classic on this subject from the 1990 Lenore Turr's Too Scared to Cry, uh, Psychic Trauma in Childhood. And just in the preface, it actually is dedicated to the kidnapped children of Chachilla. And I'll just read the quote because this touches on the experience of this world-renowned author. The participants in a research study seldom benefit directly from that study. Instead, they give a kind of a gift to others. Mm. And I think maybe there's something in an ethical dimension of a Royal Commission, both the setting up and the participants that somewhere know that it is on balance going to hurt people but maybe it's an altruism of our culture to the next generation as well. So it alters the frame of ethics from individual autonomy to a generational perspective, and that would be in keeping with the nature of trauma, which alters all our frames, Mm. actually. Um, Thanks for raising that. Malice, uh, I wonder if we can leave this conversation here and come back next month and have a bit more of a discussion about how we think the Royal Commission is actually doing, you know. Are they meeting those ethical obligations and, and how is it leaving those, what was it, 32,000 participants who've who've come in with calls and letters? Um, but thank you for raising it. I think it's a really important part of it. Uh, We'll put those numbers up on our Facebook page. And, um, of course, there is always the Lifeline number as well if anyone needs. 131114. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Miss Medic. Uh, Okay, deep breath, everyone. Change of topic. Uh, We're going to go on to round out the show with a quick chat about alternative therapies, Ms. Medic. Mm. And I don't know if this is going to, you know, cheer everybody up because we're talking about some things like cancer. But nonetheless, um, today, like, I I think that I couldn't help but talk a little bit about this today after this week that we've had in medicine that's been bombarded, the media's been bombarded with stories in particular of some young women that have been um, battling uh, cancer and and using alternate therapies. Um, the main case that I was that sort of came to the fore was that of Jess Ainscough, who was a a young woman who had a rare epithelioid sarcoma affecting her left shoulder, um, and has been battling with it for some years. But quite publicly. Um, using alternate therapies such as Gerson therapy and other alternate therapies and has been um, nicknamed the wellness warrior as she battled her cancers using an alternate therapies. Unfortunately, she passed away a couple of weeks ago um, at you know, the age of 30, which is mm. you know, terrible and tragic and very, very sad. And I want to make sure that I'm sensitive to any of her family or friends that are listening, to the, that potentially could be listening, and that um, obviously I think you know, she clearly went through an awful ordeal and we feel for her family and friends that are suffering at this time. Um, there was another large case, which I, didn't re- I don't really want to talk about today, that of Belle Gibson, who is the young woman who has... Um, proclaimed that she has been treating her her cancer, her so-called terminal brain tumour, with um, a, sort of a, very, um, a, a, um, a dietary kind of approach and has been selling this whole pantry app that has talks about diet for well-being. But look, now that seems to be there's a whole mess associated with this case and it's actually come into question whether she actually has a cancer at all and she's sort of gone to ground after mm. not donating the thousands of dollars that she had said that she was going to donate to charity. Anyway, that all just sounds like one big awful mess, so I don't want to go there today. But what I wanted to talk about is I can't help as a doctor really get involved with these cases and think about you know how does how does this happen that we are losing young people to who are sort of shunning conventional therapies which in my mind have a and in the mind of in, 
of the medical community at large um, have a greater chance of curing them or giving them um, longevity versus these alternate therapies. And I guess um, just to clarify, I'll just define what I'm talking about. Conventional therapies, I'm talking about proven medical therapies that have to go through that rigorous um, testing in the layers of evidence that Mel has pointed out. So the evidence base needs to support that these therapies work. They're not always enjoyable therapies. You know, we're talking about the chemotherapies, the radiotherapy uh, and uh, surgery in terms of cancer. Now, complementary therapies, when I'm talking about that, they're designed to enhance well-being and are often used in conjunction with conventional medical therapies. So... Um, um, when I'm talking about alternative therapies, I'm talking about something different to that where we're talking about um, using therapy in place of the con- conventional therapies as, instead of as, as an adjunct. Um, and these therapies are often either disproven or um, unproven. So the thing that came to the fore in the... I know we haven't got much time... Um, when uh, the, when the issues about homeopathy came out this week with the NH and MRC Council saying there's no evidence, I heard someone being interviewed on the radio who was a, a practitioner of homeopathy and um, when the interviewer said to her, well, if these aren't the studies that you support, even if the NH and MRC conducted all the studies that you would like and the answer still came out that homeopathy didn't work, would you take that on board? And her answer was no. Mm. And that hit me like a slap in the face that doctors, we keep talking about the evidence, the evidence, the evidence, um, but clearly for some people, the true believers, that, that's just not relevant. They, they don't care whether yeah. there's evidence or not. So it led me to think, look, that people do gain something from these alternate therapies. And if we keep just talking about the evidence, we're missing the point. People will still go to alternate therapies. So what are they getting? And I think that what they're getting is there's something in that interaction with the alternate therapist that they get more than they're getting from doctors. So then there's something that we're missing. There's something that we as the Western medicine should needs to really focus on in our communication. Yeah, it's about the art of medicine, not just the science. It's about, you know, really listening to people and their needs and their fears and their worries. And I think that that needs to be the focus rather than keep touting the evidence because it's it's clearly not getting through. What a beautiful note to finish on, Miss Medic. Thank you for that, and and what a way to think about how we can do medicine better so everyone benefits. Um, This is going to lead in perfectly to Einstein and GoGo, which is coming up now, because they're talking all about homeopathy on that show as well and the study that came out this this, uh, week and the statement from the NH and MRC. So don't go anywhere. Keep listening to Einstein and GoGo, but that's it for radiotherapy. Thanks, Dr Malice, Miss Medic, Dr Sue White. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be back next week. See you then. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids. Is that right? All right. Okay. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.